Pastor Xavier Reese, contending for the faith with the simple truths of the Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's an amazement to me every time I look that the God of this world who created everything, who is holy, He loves me. And He loved me when He knew all that I would be and do before I would accept Him. That's a foreign kind of love. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Having recently completed an overview of the New Testament epistle of Jude, Pastor Xavier now begins an insightful closer look into the letter that in turn is taking its own look into the church concerning apostasy that was taking root at the time. Pastor Xavier duly notes that Jude's writing also includes a warning to be diligently on the lookout for false doctrine taught among the body of believers still today as he begins a verse-by-verse series of the book of Jude. As you look around and you look at Christendom, all who include themselves as Christians, those who profess to be hard-line Protestants, and you stop and listen to what they teach and what they allow to go forth as gospel, there is a very stern departure from the faith today. I am not talking about differences, such as those who believe in the gifts and those who do not. I am not talking about the old argument of Calvinism, Arminianism. Those are differences that we can negotiate on without any problem. I'm talking about a departure from the faith as we have it in Scripture, where men begin to preach another gospel, clothed in the biblical vocabulary, but meaning and living out a complete different gospel. And this is really what Judas going to be talking about. He opens up Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Again, we said that you find many triads in the epistle of Jude, and here is one of the first. We said our introduction that Jude is believed to be the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He was an unbeliever prior to the resurrection. He was a believer after the resurrection. And here we find him writing this small epistle, and he identifies himself as a servant. The word is doulos, a bond slave, one who is a slave by choice, a servant by choice. You know the Old Testament culture of that, which the servant was allowed to be set free on the seventh year. If he chose not to, he would take the elders of the city along with his master, They would uh, take him to the doorpost, put a hole in his ear, and he would wear an earring, and that meant that he was a bond slave by choice for life because he loved his master. Jude identifies himself as such a person, a bond slave to his own half-brother, to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul opens up with this title for himself in Romans and Philippians and Titus. James also calls himself a bondservant 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 opens up also. And interestingly enough, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the characteristic of those who acknowledge the lordship of Christ over their life. They are servants by choice, not by force. And so often as we look to the Christian community or we hear so many different Christians talk, and it's almost like Jesus is forcing them to serve. Never. The only way God honors service is when it's from our heart. Even as Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, that the only way God honors your giving is from your heart. Not by the amount you give, but by the motive that you give it. Is it because you want to be seen? And the same goes for service. Is it because of the amount you give? And the same goes for service. Or is it from your heart and in proportion to what God has blessed you, even as your service? You cannot separate the two. We can do a lot of things and people can look upon us, but deep down, God knows our heart. He knows where we're at. He knows where we're going. He knows why we do things. In this title here, a servant, a bond servant, should be one that should be embraced by all Christians. Not by choice, though he won't accept it, but by choice. But that choice comes only because recognizing who we are. We've been bought with a price. We do not belong to ourselves. I know that we like to say it, but it's hard to live, isn't it? But Jude doesn't only call himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He says, the brother of James. Again, this James was one who was known, and most likely it was his brother, at Jerusalem. In Acts 15, he was the one who spoke out as the leader of the Jerusalem church in Acts 15, 13. Paul made mention of him also in Galatians 1:19. He went up to see James. Jude does not back off from this association. He was a man who did not mind, a man who did not uh, get flustered over being second man. Jude was complacent to be known as the brother of James. He addresses his letter to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Again, he lines it up in threes. Those who are called. In the Greek, the word called is really at the end of the sentence to emphasize those who have been called to salvation. In the translation, they've put it here in the beginning, in the New King James. In the Old King James, it's still at the end. But to those who are called regarding salvation, that's who he's addressing. He's addressing believers, those who can understand what he is saying. It's always interesting to me that we want to lay a heavy trip on the non-believer with the New Testament, and yet the New Testament was written to the saint, not the non-believer. It is to us who understand. And then we communicate the gospel by evangelizing, by preaching, by our lives, by our prayers. But the New Testament was written to the believer, not to the non-believer. And yet we're always trying to lay heavy trips on the non-believer. They're dead spiritually. They can't obey. They can't respond. They can't understand. The things of God are foolishness unto them. The word call is also synonymous with election. You run across that in Scripture. Predestination. And people get all flustered about predestination, election. And so you have those who line up on one side and they say, well, yes, God has predestined some to be saved and 
then they automatically conclude that God has predestined some to be damned. Wrong. God has never predestined anybody to be damned. Well, how does that work? I don't know. But the Bible says whosoever will. But he predestined some. Yes, he did. But he predestined none to go to hell. But men choose to go to hell by rejecting the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Who are the elect? Those that are predestined. Who are the predestined? Those that are called. Who are those that are called? Those that respond. Well, wait a minute. I don't know either. <laughs> God won't be put in a box. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He placed over his London pastor's college, over the doorway, these words. Holding, I am held. I like that. <laughs> because it embraces both doctrines, free will and predestination. They are not doctrines in themselves. They cannot stand. But they are complementary one to the other. Now, anytime you lean to the one exclusively without the other, you're going to be wrong. You're going to miss the mark. You grab the one with the right hand, you grab the other with the left hand, and you walk right down the middle in reverence of God. And you stay in Christ. There are some teachers who teach predestination, eternal security, to such an extreme that they're almost teaching license for sin. And they say, if you're born again, no matter what you do, you're going to be in heaven. Well, I don't buy that. Because the Bible says, no fornicator, no homosexual, no infeminate, no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're in adultery and if you're fornicating and you die, I would think that you fall in that category. So I would not want to teach predestination and eternal security to such an extreme that I will allow you to believe that you can do whatever you want and because you've been born again, you're going to be there. I don't think I have that license to do that. I teach you to abide in Christ. 1 John chapter 1 says, if you say you're in the light, you'll walk in the light. If you don't, if you walk in darkness, you lie, you don't have the truth. I do believe in assurance. We are to be assured of our salvation. 1 John wrote, I don't doubt my salvation. I don't know if you do. I've never ever doubted that I was my father's son. I know who my father is here on earth. Do you think it'll be less for me to know my father in heaven? But if you look at my dad and you look at me, you see a resemblance. If I am a child of God, you're going to see a resemblance between I and the father. If I don't see a resemblance, then I have to doubt the relationship. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. That's the only way we can know. And when a person tells me that they're born again, that they're called, but they are living and practicing sin, then I have to doubt if they're born again or I have to doubt if they're walking in Christ. And that's what the Scriptures teach. And so he says he writes to those who are called, but he also says those who are sanctified. Now, some of your translations may have those beloved. You might have a footnote there. Some of the manuscripts have beloved, so one or the other. The idea is, is those who are recipients of God's love. They're the object of God's love. So whether you use the word beloved or sanctified, they both speak of that object, that person who has received the love of God. We have not only received the love of God, but we are the object of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
That's an amazement to me every time I look that the God of this world who created everything, who is holy, who is so transcendent beyond my finding out, he loves me. And he loved me before he saved me. He loved me when he knew all that I would be and do before I would accept him. That's a foreign kind of love. And that's why the Bible says God is love. It's his very nature, his very character. He can do nothing but love. But how he loves you all depends on where you stand with him. If you're in the sun, the love has great benefit. If you're not in the sun, then his love for holiness demands wrath. He has no other choice. He cannot violate his own Holiness, for he cannot look upon iniquity with condonance or approval. And unless we find ourselves in the Son, Jesus Christ, then we have the wrath of God upon us. And so we are the recipients of God's love, set apart for his glory, for his purposes. But not only called and sanctified or beloved, but he says preserved. Here's the assurance. I am preserved in Christ Jesus, he says there. In, mark that well, put a circle around it, in Christ Jesus. The word preserve means to guard or to watch. It's used five times in Jude. In verse 1, in verse 6, it's translated keep and reserved. In verse 13, it's translated reserved. In verse 21, it's used keep. And notice the context in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Here's the human side. You have the divine side. He called you. He preserves you. Here's the human responsibility. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You see how one cannot stand without the other? I'm sorry, but Jude wasn't a Calvinist. But equally, Jude wasn't an Armenianist. He believed both. And he walked right down the middle. That's where I like to walk right in the middle of God's love. It's the best place. Now he greets them. He says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, ilios, it means compassion. Less than we deserve, this is his desire for them. They have received grace. And now he says, may you receive mercy. Jude is a very practical man. He knows that even as Christians, as we are redeemed, we still fall short. And sometimes we get ourselves in such messes, and by the mercy of God, he gives us less than we really deserve. As Billy Ingram would say, that deserves an amen. <laughs> because I can bear witness of that in my life. Oh, how sometimes we add to our own hurt, and by God's mercy, he gets us out of it. But the problem with that is that we think we can continue to tempt Christ and he will always do that for us. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he allows us to reap to what we have sown. And it's very, very bitter at times. The word mercy as part of the salutation is only found in a few epistles. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, 
in Titus 1 verse 4 and here in Jude. Interesting enough, every time we find the word mercy in the opening salutation, it's always an epistle that is dealing with false teaching. When we are confronting error, we desperately need the mercies of God because the false teaching is always from within. Read the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. Paul tells Timothy, let no one teach any other doctrine. He tells Titus these men's mouths must be stopped. Teach sound doctrine. Continue in the doctrine which you have learned. You will save yourself and others. He speaks about those by name who had overthrown the faith of some about the resurrection. Having loved the world, they departed. And he's always speaking about that from within. It's easy to identify false doctrine from without. That's not the problem. The problem even here is in Jude is that when those come in the church and they say they are Christians and they start teaching false doctrine. That is the difficult part about combating false doctrine from within. We desperately need the mercies of God to combat apostasy and the apostates. We need the mercies of God. The Bible says that God's mercies are great, they are sure, they are abundant, they are tender, and they are new every morning. And we need them over our lives. And so he says mercy, and then he says peace, a beautiful word. It means to join together. It is used for the mending of nets. Now when we were born again, we made peace with God. We were at enmity with God. We were enemies against God. We were rebelling against God. And God was at war with us. Make no mistake of that. And then as we accepted Christ, we made peace with God. Romans 5.1. We were justified in Christ. But Jude here is speaking about the peace that comes throughout our life. That peace that passes all understanding in Philippians 4.7. It's the peace of God for those situations of life that we are going through, for those situations that we don't understand, those situations that we have to trust God for. Here in the context of false teaching, he says, be diligent, be faithful, but let the peace of God rule your heart because you know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Yet, be diligent. And finally, he says, and love be multiplied to you. The word is agape, divine love. We need so desperately, even as he begins with God's love, he finishes the epistle with divine love. Keep yourself in the love of God, agape love. I tell you, if you don't, as you walk your life in Christ, there are just enough people, enough situations that will come into your life that will turn you bitter. And you only have one of two options in life as a Christian. You'll either get better or bitter. No other option. Either you will grow in Christ and His love and peace and mercy will be multiplied to you or you will become self-righteous and callous and bitter. And you'll think that everybody's all a bunch of hypocrites. And so you start living out your faith all by yourself thinking that you are a rock and an island. And yet God has called you to a body a corporate body to give of yourself and to do what God has called you to do. 
Now in verse 3 and 4, we have the occasion for the letter. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. An endearing term, beloved. Break it up and take it as a command. Be loved. Receive the love of God. Receive what He desires to do in your life. His motive is love for you. His motive is not to make life difficult for you or myself, but His motive is to perfect you and to refine you into the image of Jesus Christ that you might be aligned with His perfect will and that you might receive the greatest of benefits in Christ for His glory. Jude says here that while he was diligent to write to them concerning the common salvation, in other words, Jude was just going to write just some normal letter to Christians. Nothing out of the norm. Just talking about the general faith in Christ. He says here that he was compelled by the Spirit of God and he was redirected to write this letter. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you. Exhortation. People need exhortation. People need to respond to exhortation. Exhortation means, come on, get up, do something. You can do it. Sometimes as a body in Christ Jesus, we just sit and we're so full of knowledge but we need exhortation. Get up and do something with what God has given to you. Do something about your faith and with your faith. And so here he's writing to exhort them, but it's not to do something with their faith, but it's to do something regarding their faith. And he says that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The word contend earnestly is only found one time. It is here. In the New Testament, it means to fight against the assault. The, it's made up of three Greek words. The root verb is the word agon. We get our word agonize or agony from it. It's a word that is used throughout the New Testament to identify an athlete who agonizes to excel and to be the best. And Judah is saying here, the Holy Spirit has constrained me, forced me, I can do nothing but that. And it is simply this, to exhort you to fight, to agonize earnestly to defend the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In other words, the faith is under attack from within. Scripture is the standard. And when you go beyond Scripture, you are wrong. When you start twisting the Scriptures, you are wrong. When you start exalting your experience and add to the Word, you are wrong. And you're giving open license for everybody else to do the same thing. Then what is going to be the standard? You open a can of worms. Then you have to accept the Mormons, the Jehovah Witness, and Gandhi, and everybody else. The scriptures are the standard. Pastor Xavier Reese with an impassioned plea for believers to contend for the faith as it's under harmful attack from false teaching 
as proclaimed through the New Testament book of Jude. You can hear this message again, if you like, online anytime by selecting today's date at the radio listings link at calvarychapelpasadena.com. And we've had to break only partway through this study, but if your schedule will permit you to tune in next time for the conclusion, as always, you can pick up your own personal copy. And the title you want to ask for is simply Jude Part 2. It's available on CD for just $4. That title once again is Jude Part 2. Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And then thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com